Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Happy Friday the 13th. It's one of my favorite days. Yeah. So today we, we've been doing this situation with holidays, as you may have noticed, where we talk about origins. We talk about true crime. We talk about all the things. So Friday the 13th is a spooky holiday. Yeah. And it's pre-spooky season this year, which I really enjoy. So today we're going to talk about some background on Friday the 13th, superstitions, and then also some Friday the 13th true crime, including a case that you may have heard of before, which I, I feel like a lot of people have heard of it, but don't know all of the details. I was really interested to learn about it. Yeah. So first we're going to talk about a very real phobia, and that's the fear of Friday the 13th. I didn't know that that was like a, an actual phobia. I just thought people were weird. Yeah, I didn't think it was a thing either. I mean, I know that there's people who make sure they don't do anything important on those days. I didn't know it was a real thing that humans were doing where they were not doing well on these days. I love Friday the 13th. My birthday also falls on Friday the 13th every few years. Oh, that's nice. I like that. Ben's bestie, their wedding was on Friday the 13th and it was a real spooky wedding and it was beautiful. I love it. And stunning. And so I have no fear of the Friday the 13th. Mm -mm. But we do love the spooky and creepiness that goes around Friday the 13th and the number 13. So there's a word for fear of the number 13, and that's triskaidekaphobia. Then there's the fear of Friday the 13th. That's periscabidekaphobia. And then if you wanted to just kind of throw all of this together, there's also another word for periscabidekaphobia. Hope and a prayer that I'm saying these correctly, honestly. And that other word is phobia. <laughs> yeah, you did good. Yeah. And that's a little interesting because that one kind of is like, you're afraid of Friday and 13, your frig and your trisk, if you will. Yeah. So frig is the Norse goddess for Friday from Norse mythology. So that's how it gets there. But too long, too long. I, I would rather them just say, I'm afraid of Friday the 13th. What if it was Friday the 13th phobia with little dashes in between? Yeah, that works. Gets the point across. The other ones make me feel not smart, you know? <laughs> it's too long of a word. Too long. My brain tries to figure it out. And generally, if there's a word we don't know how to pronounce in our outlines, we'll have let we'll like break it down by syllable. So if you're like bouncing with us from each syllable, it is what it is. We're doing our best. We're doing our best. <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> so I didn't realize this, but Friday the 13th happens at least once a year, but it can occur up to three times in one year. And the easiest way to know is look through all the months and any month that starts on a Sunday, you're going to have a Friday the 13th. Didn't even occur to me. There was going to be an easy way to tell. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it didn't occur to me, but this is ours for this year, I believe. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because you kind of see the fear of the number 13 all around. Like if you go to a hotel, you'll notice when you're like selecting your floor that there is no 13th floor, which to me is just incredibly silly because unless you're going to full on skip a floor, 14 is just 13. Exactly. Just have an empty floor, I guess. I don't know. It seems silly. And sometimes they'll also even skip the room numbers 13. 
Also, some airlines don't even have a 13th row, which again, if you're in the 14th row, it's the 13th, unless there's extra leg room on the 14th. It's absolutely silly. Yeah, I like the number 13. I don't understand. (laughs) So why is it number 13? Like what makes 13 so absolutely horrifying? Numerologists consider 12 a complete number. Also, Western cultures historically associate the number 12 as good. It's complete. Examples. There's the 12 days of Christmas. We have a 12-month calendar. There are 12 different zodiac signs. So you see the number 12, meaning full, right? It feels like we're really being liberal with the idea of, well, if it's not included, then it should be excluded, right? They're just saying the number after means beyond completeness. So it's weird. But wouldn't that mean that 14, 15, 16, 17, and then the rest of the podcast, I'm going to continue to count numbers after 12. Wouldn't they all be like spooky if you're thinking of it in that way? It's just the odd number out. I don't know. Norse mythology may have started the superstition surrounding 13 people at the dinner table being bad luck. You're going to hear about this come up a couple times. And that might be kind of the root of where 13 began to be bad or creepy because of this and another one I'll talk about in a moment. So three sat down for a meal at the God's Feast. Then Loki came. If you don't know who Loki is, he's the god of mischief, the trickster god, a Marvel character. He's also my cat who full on harasses and terrorizes you when you try to edit. If you guys aren't on Instagram, please follow us because you'll see beautiful videos of a cat full on just going to town on Amanda's computer screen, just pawing it. Like, he's going hard. Yeah, that's why he was appropriately named. Yeah, his name is very appropriate. I mean, he's turned off my computer during edits, during notes, just, yeah, he wants to sabotage me. So, yeah, rightly named. But anyway, so Loki crashes the feast, and he was the 13th person to come to this dinner, and he also caused one of the gods to die. There are a few different stories surrounding Loki that I was able to find. Another one said that Loki caused the world to be plunged into darkness. Others said that the time that Loki had killed a god was when he tricked another god into killing one with a mistletoe arrow and then showed up and the feast was the other 12 gods mourning the loss. And then he was like the uninvited 13th guest. But it seems like this story kind of changes and depending on what you're actually looking for, it can be a different story. But like he was still the 13th person in each one. This also goes along closely to Christian superstitions surrounding the number because of the Last Supper. So there were 13 guests at the Last Supper, Jesus and the 12 apostles, but Judas betrayed him. The seating arrangement for the Last Supper also produced the Christian superstition or the belief of a bad omen when having 13 people at a table. It also meant like courting death from what I saw. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually cared that 13 people were eating at a table, more so that it's hard to fit 13 chairs around a table. Yeah, or that I want to know before we sit down how we're going to be splitting the check. Are we having a mathematician at the table or can we do a split check situation? If so, are we splitting it 13 ways or are we like going to lit like itemize? It gives me great stress to like not understand like how that's going to work because a lot of people you know it's just i don't know that i can't drink too much because then i'll have to like what if i'm the what if i'm the mathematician you do not want me to be the mathematician and i'm always the mathematician it's not fun it's not a good role to leave on your friends 
It's not. It's not like I have actively like picked a restaurant to go to knowing that it's easier in the end. I know that they'll be like split trucks in the beginning and they'll like put people's stuff on a thing. <laughs> Anywho, I'm extra ranty today. I love your rants. <laughs> so Friday in general, another couple things why people don't like Fridays. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. It's believed to be the day that Eve gave Adam the apple. The day that Cain killed his brother Abel. Whatever religion, I love Fridays. I don't think it's fair. Don't blame the day. Yeah, it's not the day's fault. I'm thinking people didn't like Friday the 13th for whatever reason, probably these. And then they passed it down to their kids like, oh, it's a bad day. They had no idea why. And then they were nervous around Friday the 13th, acted like that. And then others, you know, begin to do the same thing. They do do super cheap tattoos that day around here. Yeah. It's a great day. A lot of places do super cheap tattoos that day. There's really good clothing deals for alternative clothing on Friday the 13th. It's just a good day. Okay, so let's chat about when both Friday and the number 13 fuse together as an unlucky duo. So on Friday the 13th in October of 1307, Robic throwback. Officers of King Philip IV arrested hundreds of the Knights of Templar, and they were imprisoned on charges of illegal behaviors. If you've watched things like the Da Vinci Code, you've heard of them. I feel like there's a lot of them in the media. For like a hot second, it was a trope, and then it went away. But so a lot of people think the reason for their arrests was made up by the king, and a lot of them were actually executed later. So a lot of people think that this is the origin story, if you will, of Friday the 13th being unlucky. Interesting. But I I don't think anyone would ever really, yeah, go back to 1307 and go, something bad happened this day. So therefore, every Friday the 13th after is bad. It's silly. Yeah, I just, I mean, we, we tend to do that sometimes with like really terrible events. But I feel like in modern day, I don't think most people are like, that is why it is unlucky. Yeah. There's a ton of legends about the Templars, but it's kind of hard to say which ones are true. So we're not even going to go down that rabbit hole. So some folklorists suggest that there's no evidence for the superstition of Friday the 13th before the 19th century. And interestingly, the earliest reference is is from a biography from 1869 of a person who thought that Fridays and the number 13 were lucky in his own life. And he ended up dying on Friday the 13th. Interesting. So others believe that the origin of the spookiness of Friday the 13th is from the 13 Club that combined the two together. I just like the simplicity of the name, the 13 Club. So they wanted to debunk the 13 superstition, and they were founded by Captain William Fowler, who graduated at 13 from public school district number 13. Love it already. As a builder, he built 13 buildings in New York, and he retired from combat on August 13th of 1863, and he survived 13 battles of the Civil War. He resigned his commission on August 13, 1863 as well. He purchased a bar on 6th Avenue and 28th Street called the Knickerbocker Cottage on September 13 of 1863. He was busy that year. I love this. So 20 years later, he sells it on April 13th, which was a Friday, and also Amanda's birthday, mm-hmm. the most special of days. Uh, she was not born in <laughs> 1883, though, just to clarify. Might as well be. Uh, no vampires on the show that you know of. It's believed that Captain Fowler started the 13 Club because someone would dismiss their nine-year-old daughter from the table if the number of people at the table ever reached 13. 
So that individual would then go, oh, there's 13 people. Now you need to leave. And the daughter wouldn't be able to take part in that dinner or spend time with the guests any longer. Toodaloo, Suzette. You're out. Right? (laughs) Or Suzette. I don't know if that's her name, but it sounds appropriate. That feels right. It's said that he missed the little girl's company. So he it sounds like he just liked kids and didn't like the prejudice of the number. So he decided, well, I'll get 13 men together. We'll eat a meal together and we'll see what happens. It took him a year to get enough brave people to partake in this dinner. Bananas. So silly. Yeah. The inaugural 13 Club meeting was on Friday, January 13th. 1882 at 8.13 p.m. in room 13 of the cottage. Okay, okay. (laughs) I love it. And so what I love is that the attendees passed under a ladder under a banner that read Moratori Salutimus, meaning those of us who are about to die salute you. So the dinner started with a coffin-shaped lobster salad, which was part of 13 courses. Delicious. Salt was spilled on the table. However, throwing salt over your shoulder was forbidden. So I love that they're taking these like bad superstitions, if you will, and going like, eh, and kind of being like, ooh, we're risky. But it seems like that was actually terrifying for a lot of people. Yeah. I also, 10 out of 10, love the idea of like a spooky season 13 course dinner. Right. Well, a couple of years back, my husband and friend threw me an unlucky 13 birthday party. Oh, I love that. And so we had a lot of this. We had the salt. We had the the upside down pennies on the table. They had a ladder, open umbrellas inside. They even hired a fortune teller. I love that. To do everyone's fortunes. It was a lot of fun. Okay, so for this guy and also for my party, surprise, surprise, everyone that attended the parties lived So a year later, the 13 Club reported that no members died or had any serious illness. Also included that the members have been, quote, exceptionally healthy and fortunate. There was even a London Club. So like expanded. I love that. And Mr. W.H. Blanche was the founder in London. One member died since the club was established after four years. And he said that particular member had not paid his subscription. I love that. I love that so much. Technically, he wasn't part of it. So additional clubs began to spring around the country, including the Moore Club and Vampires. <laughs> Little different. All these people sound so fun. Yeah, I would want to be their friend. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be part of those 13 people. So four presidents became honorary members over time. Oscar Wilde refused to join. Wilde said, I love superstitions. They're the opponent of common sense. Interesting. So the club also wrote to officials asking them to change the day of hangings to another day so that Friday could stop being so unlucky. Yeah. There was uh, an article from the New York Times that was published in May of 1887 that kind of included some of this. And I just thought it was interesting that you can still find articles that long ago. And then that particular article was just interesting. They're like, please stop doing this. So meetings included things like mirror smashing, salt spilling, like we kind of said their first one had the salt, and then also trying to debunk other superstitions. So like you'll see pictures of some of these. They'll just have a ton of different weird things that's happening. And it's just to debunk that, hey, this isn't actually going to give you bad luck. This isn't going to kill you. 
They enjoyed poking fun at superstitions and may have made superstitions popular huh. in the process of doing this. So for how you and I view Friday the 13th, we might owe it to these guys for making it fun. Yes. Yeah, like the spookiness of it and also just the vibe. Did you ever watch Gilmore Girls? No, I did not. It reminded me there's like a secret society called the Life and Death Brigade. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1907, the novel Friday the 13th was published and it was written by Thomas William Lawson. And it in the little quote of the synopsis. So it told the story of a New York City stockbroker who plays on the superstitions about the date to create chaos on Wall Street and making a killing on the market. Uh <laughs> And likely Friday the 13th will evoke thoughts of the movie Friday the 13th, which is just another reason why people think it's unlucky now. Like it's more spooky because of that, I think. But so the movie was released in 1980. Iconic main character of Jason with his hockey mask. If you just think about just the amount of merch that came from Friday the 13th, like if you see a hockey mask, I don't think hockey the first moment. <laughs> I think Jason. And I also, I don't know if I've talked about it on here yet. Have I talked about my dad's friends who are horror movie reenactors? I think you've mentioned them, but not like specifics. So, and this is tangentially related, but as like 20% of the things that I say, 20 to 80%, it's a wide margin. Um, so when I was a kid, my dad had friends who were harm V reenactors. And I mean, I guess they would be cosplayers now, if you think about it, like they would go to cons and stuff. So I don't know if that's what they called it then. It was the 90s. But I, my dad had friends who were Freddy Krueger, Jason. And they would sometimes just like show up to places, not during Halloween, not when it was spooky season. And that was so that's all to say that Jason was in my actual life. Anywho. <laughs> well, I think this is one of the first like horror franchises that I can think of that had sequels, right? Like that a horror movie did so well that they were able to add more to it because a lot of the time horror movies really didn't do all that great all the time, right? It was like, when you think of older ones at least. This also had comics, video games, and like you just mentioned, the costumes, right? Like people dedicated so much that they became the character. I will say for the video game, it was awful and I gave up and had to go back to Dead by Daylight because I couldn't figure out how to play. Yeah, I am terrible at video games like this. You know this because Ben will be going to do something and he'll hand me the remote and I will have the headset and the remote and I'll just be flailing wildly while being like picked up by a spider thing. It's terrifying. But when I had gotten myself like an Xbox 360 years ago and it wouldn't let me get past the tutorial because like it was like you need to be able to do this. And I couldn't like I couldn't do it. It didn't feel good. Oh, <laughs> poor thing. Can't even play the video game. Anywho. <laughs> Friday the 13th and Tangents is the name of this episode. Fair. So Friday the 13th now, it's estimated that 17 to 21 million people in the U.S. are fearful of the Friday on the 13th day. That's nuts. I think it considers the people that are like hesitant of the day that are like, I'm not going to buy a house that day. I'm not going to make any big life changing decisions because it's Friday the 13th. I don't know if I believe that. Or like buy it like plane tickets. Yeah, I don't know if I, I haven't ever been in a position to make a decision, but I don't know if I would. I think it, I would pause at least. Really? Yeah, I think that like I would see it and go, huh. And then I would, I would continue on just the briefest of hesitation. I would rather be cautiously superstitious than reckless. 
I flipped my hands around when I said that. That's why you probably hear me going in and out of the mic. <laughs> well, I think it's for like people that were going to have bad decisions made will reflect back and be like, oh, that was Friday the 13th. That must have been why I lost money in this investment or why I lost this. That's that's my opinion. When I've lost money in investments, it's always on the Friday. <laughs> that's my rich person laugh, by the way. Sorry. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. I can feel the diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> that laugh is dripping diamonds baby <laughs> so some people don't even leave their house on that day and it's estimated that around 800 to 900 million is lost in business on friday the 13th and that's reflected in people not wanting to fly or do major business that they would normally do However, things like tattoo shops, it's their busiest day. I feel like if you leaned into the spookiness factor, like if I had a dark and dreary romantic type of bar area kind of situation, like low light, you know the vibe I'm talking about. I would absolutely have like a 13 course menu on those days where you pay like, I don't know, $130, $113. And then it starts at 813, like the 13 Club. I hope some restauranteur is listening and takes this into heart. So we can go to there. Yeah, so we can go to there. But also so they can recoup some of this 800 to $900 million that they're specifically losing on that day. Just the idea that like it's just one industry that like lost it. Like what if it was like just uh, ear piercers who lost that much money on one day? Like just like a very narrow scope. Anywho. <laughs> well, here's some good news. The world actually might be slightly less dangerous on Friday the 13th because a lot of people aren't leaving their house. In a 2008 study by the Dutch Center for Insurance Statistics, they showed fewer traffic accidents occurred on Friday the 13th than any other Friday. Huh. So superstitious people are bad drivers. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> Apparently. Also, fire and theft reports also had dropped on that day. Hmm. I mean, it does feel like if you were going to break into someone's house on the 13th and steal an amulet, you would be cursed on Friday the 13th. Like that. I'm going to start calling my, my necklaces amulets. My First off, you didn't say necklace. You said necklace. <laughs> I'm laughing. Fuck you. Which is, no, no, hold on. But here's why, here's why I like it. Because it's the mixture of necklace and amulet. So it's a neculate. And I like it. Like, I like it a lot. Well, that's what they're called now. You're welcome for when you go to your little craft show. You're going to have some neculates. Yeah, my little craft show. Yeah, I'll I'll make some ne neculates. That's a, you're welcome. Thank you. I will be purchasing too. <laughs> But you will not be stealing them on Friday the 13th, correct? Because that will curse you. Oh, I fucking will. What would be the worst curse that you could get? I don't know. What's, what's yours? I don't know. Give me something to compare it to. Like, and I'm not talking like weird, bizarre curse, like run-of-the-mill curse. Do you like that vagueness? Oh, man. What if you could only see things that were scary. Isn't that just watching the news? No lies detected there. But I mean more like, like you only see like big spiders or like a person coming at you. That's a very specific. <laughs> and I need you to know that is completely just right now in this moment. That was like the worst thing I could think of is not only being able to see scary things. I don't know. My mind do what it do. 
<laughs> a very specific Friday the 13th. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I feel like I am cursed lately with uh, sleep. So that continuing is the curse to me. Yeah. Did you steal? Did you steal a magic necklace? Friday the 13th. <laughs> I did. Yep, that's what happened. <laughs> so one of the things that we looked at, too, was whether this was like a worldwide thing. It would make sense that it would be a worldwide thing, because if it goes back to the Knights Templar, obviously America didn't exist in the 1300s. So it would have to be worldwide, as Pitbull would say. So some Spanish countries and also Greek countries consider Tuesday the 13th as an unlucky day rather than Friday. Interesting. I generally really enjoy Tuesdays. Yeah, I don't like Tuesdays. Tuesdays are... Yeah. No, I like them. I, they're like, I'm still hopeful for the week, you know? Oh, no, I've lost all hope by Tuesday. <laughs> it is true. It, <laughs> anywho, there's no hope left. <laughs> so uh, in Italian culture, Friday the 17th is also considered bad luck. And that's because Roman numeral 17 can be arranged into V-I-X-I, which looks like Vixie. And in Latin, it means my life is over. That's weird to be like, when it's rearranged. Yeah, that sounds like it should be. Oh, hold on. Give me a second. It would be, what, 5,111. That's what Vixie would be. Well, I asked some friends that have family in both of these cultures. Have you heard of any of this? And they're like, I haven't, but I wouldn't put it past someone. And then when I was looking online, I was trying to really find like the root of it. And I couldn't really find nowadays, it being these days, it's like slowly becoming Friday the 13th. But there were comments like, oh, my great grandmother used to say this or whatever. So hard to say. Yeah. I also, you know who would have believed this? Who? Leonardo. Leonardo for sure believed this. If there was a superstition, she was grabbing on with both hands and then she was draining it of its blood, baking the blood, mixing it into tea cakes that are crunchy, not soft, and then boiling down the fat to make a soap. If you know, you know. If you don't, go go listen to Leonardo Chantrul. You won't regret it. So, Amanda, what is some awful shit that's happened on Friday the 13th? There's been a lot. So Friday the 13th of 1940, the German bombing of Buckingham Palace took place. November 13th of 1970, a cyclone killed more than 300,000 in Bangladesh. On October 13th, 1972, the disappearance of a Chilean Air Force plane in the Andes happened. September 13th of 1996 was the death of Tupac. Hmm. I didn't know that happened on a Friday the 13th. I didn't either. And then on January 13th of 2012, the crash of the Costa Concordia cruise ship happened and 30 people were killed. Wow. So in the beginning, I mentioned we were going to have some Friday the 13th true crime. And we have one case. And it's the murder of Kitty Genovese in New York City on March 13th of 1964. And one of the things I think is interesting is if you've taken Psych 101 you've likely heard her name. People talk about Kitty Genovese in relation to the bystander effect. And I actually, I was talking to my sister-in-law about this recently that like, I don't know, you see someone get hit by a car out front of a grocery store. You should point to one specific person in the crowd and say, call 911, as opposed to just screaming, someone help me. And that's kind of like the idea of it. And I knew parts 
of her story, but I didn't know all of it. And I think it's a really interesting case because Kitty influenced emergency services. She was used as an example of like how New Yorkers treated each other. She was kind of used as to further like this bystander effect. And that became her legacy. Yeah. And that's heartbreaking. Like, I feel like you hear stuff like that, right? Like you hear, we talk about all the time of cases of especially children where their legacy is what happened to them and what their parents do to like help make the world a better place. But her legacy was like, are we good people to one another if no one's holding us accountable? I watched a documentary. It's on Amazon Prime. As always, it'll be in the sources on our website. But it is by her brother. And her brother basically wants to understand what happened and why no one helped. And if the story about a whole bunch of people seeing and hearing her and doing nothing was actually true. So the movie is called The Witness. And Bill was 16 when she was murdered. So Kitty was murdered in Queens, New York in 1964, as I mentioned a moment ago. She was coming home from work, and it was about 2.30 in the morning when a man with a knife approached her. She was coming up to her apartment building. The name was the Mowbray. She tried to run to her the building when she saw him, but he grabbed her and stabbed her. She screamed loudly, and from the way the buildings look, it looks like it would have echoed. Also in the movie, interestingly, it's near the end. The brother has an actress recreate the scene and scream Ugh. so that, like, he could hear what they heard. Yeah. Which it's really hard because the most he's ever heard of her was this. Yeah. And I mean, think this was the 60s. So victims' rights and their families, like, were not hearing things in the same way. Like, her family had very little information. And we'll get to that in a second. The sound kind of bounced. So one of Kitty's neighbors, Robert Moser, screamed, let that girl alone. So the attacker was like, oh, someone sees me. And he runs away. He then goes and sits in his car and he realizes that no one's coming to help her. So she tries to crawl away and she actually kind of like goes behind a building. And I think she's trying to like get in. Yeah. So that she can like go home. And so the attacker waits 40 minutes in his car, sees that no one comes to help and he comes after her again. Horrible. She was still alive when he came back. He stabbed, raped and robbed her. Her neighbor, Sophia Farrar, found Kitty and she yelled for someone to call the police. The police arrived and Kitty was on her way to the hospital in an ambulance when she died. So a little bit more on Kitty herself. Her name was Catherine Susan Genovese. She was born in Brooklyn, New York on July 7th of 1935. And it would have been her 86th birthday this year. She was the oldest child and had four siblings. She was funny and witty. She would impersonate her teachers. She sounds so cute. After she graduated from high school, her mother saw someone get murdered in New York City. And then her and the siblings moved to Connecticut while Kitty stayed put. Kitty was married to a man named Rocco for a bit of time. She worked as both a secretary at an insurance agency and then also as a bartender, then manager. She lived in her queen's apartment with her girlfriend, Mary Ann Solanco. Her family didn't know that Marianne was her girlfriend. Kitty was the go-between for a bookie and some of her bar patrons. She was then arrested for it. The most famous photograph of her was her mugshot. She looks lovely in, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. So police told Marianne about Kitty's death at 4 a.m. Detective Mitchell Sang came to question Marianne hours later around 7 a.m. And she had been drinking with her neighbor, Carl Ross, which like... I can just like imagine that scene like you find out like your partner has been murdered. You're just like, I'm going to drink right now because I don't know how to process this. Yeah. 
So Detective Sang thought Ross was not being cooperative and arrested him for disorderly conduct. And an interesting note that when Kitty had been attacked the second time, she was at the bottom of the stairs that led to Ross's apartment. Oh, so she's trying to get up there. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about this in a second. So homicide detectives John Carroll and Jerry Burns questioned Marianne for six hours and they really focused on their sex life. Of course they did. Disgusting. So detectives questioned the neighbors as well, but they still focused on Kitty and Marianne's relationship as though that was the important thing. And in all the times that I've heard of Kitty Genovese, I had never heard that she had a girlfriend or anything like that. That was never discussed. And what the role of her sexuality played in how her murder was investigated, I had never heard that before now. So I thought that was very interesting. So witnesses reported seeing a white vehicle near the crime scene. Five days after her murder, Winston Mosley was arrested after they showed up to a call for a robbery and found him with a stolen TV in his trunk. When they brought him in, he confessed that he stole appliances frequently. So Kitty's brother went and spoke to the son of the man whose TV was stolen. So if you're following like those, that kind of relationship, he said that Mosley was like surprisingly calm for somebody who was like stealing something and then was being arrested. Mosley had a white Corvair and the detective remembered that witnesses had recalled seeing a white vehicle. So the arresting detective called detectives John Carroll Mitchell Sang to see if maybe there was a relationship here. So they saw scabs on his hands. So they asked if he had killed Kitty. He confessed and then he confirmed information that the general public wouldn't have known. So here's what Mosley said happened. He said he saw Kitty when he was waiting at a red light. He parked his car and followed her because he had been driving around looking for a victim. There was no motive. And he said, quote, I didn't care which girl. I was going to kill her. We're going to talk about something his son's going to say later on. So I want you to remember this moment where he said, I didn't care which girl I was going to kill her. So Mosley didn't have a prior record. He confessed to other rapes and the murders of Annie Mae Johnson and Bebra Krolik. The Genovese family didn't attend his trial because they were too upset. And they honestly didn't even know the details of what had happened that night until Mosley appealed for a retrial in 1995. There were articles that came out about her neighbors and what they had said, but not about her death or her murder. So Bill wanted to learn about what had happened to her. And so he interviewed a lot of the witnesses. He went deep diving because it was actually really, really hard to find the actual witnesses because they weren't listed in police files like very clearly. So that first one is Andre Peak. So she says, I heard a voice upstairs. Suddenly the neighbors screaming. She also heard a man yelling by the bus stop. She also said, I heard the poor girl screaming help as she was moving slowly. She recounts being scared but frozen. She mentioned that he had come back and then came back towards the train station. And then she heard two more screams, help, help. And Andre is no longer alive. The next one's Irene Frost. And she says, I heard a shriek and went to the window. Across the street near the bookstore, I saw a man and a woman. The second time she heard, someone help me. Please help me. God, I've been stabbed. She then saw him run and Kitty kneeling down to the ground. And then just kind of an interesting note on Irene, she once stole $10,000 from her employer before she died. So a lot of people discredit her testimony because she doesn't seem like much of an honest person. Yeah. And part of the documentary, Bill also interviews his siblings on how they felt at the time and how, how it kind of feels now because for Bill, it defined who he was. Right. So one of those siblings being Vincent Genovese. And he says, speaking for myself, it never goes away. 
A policeman in New Canaan told him what had happened. His father sent his brother, which would have been their uncle, because he couldn't go to identify her. And then whenever they thought of her, it was just of what happened to her, which it was that significant that they always just went back to that one, you know, it's not even a memory for them. It's what they heard and what they were told about. Yeah. And it's bad enough when it's like the general world, but like for that to be your legacy with your family too, just feels very sad. Yeah. Uh, one of her other siblings was Frankie Genovese, and he remembers hearing piercing screaming after his parents had heard of what happened. So I think he was just kind of putting it into his memory what everyone was saying happened to a sibling. He stayed with friends for weeks while his parents grieved. He didn't go to Kitty's funeral. And most of the information that he got surrounding Kitty was from TV. Poor guy. For Bill, what he said was that when they left for New Canaan, he was just six. So he only saw her on the weekends when she would visit and they would ride around in her red Fiat. They would talk late and she answered like all of his questions about the world because she was his big sister who lived in the city, which like I can see that, right? And so he graduated high school two years after Kitty's death. And during his interviews, he reached out to Rocco, who she was married to at one point, and he wanted to keep his privacy. And he said, my relations with Kitty shall remain a mystery forever, which feels unnecessarily mysterious. I could see if he was like, we can have a discussion, but I won't. I don't want to be recorded. Right? I feel like that's like the kind way of handling that, especially decades after, like no reason to not discuss, in my opinion. So after he graduated from high school, the Vietnam War was going on and he had listed in the Marines because he didn't want to be apathetic like the 38 bystanders that hurt his sister and did nothing. We'll talk about what that number means, because when you think 38 bystanders, you think 38 people looking at the window watching what happened who did nothing. And that's a, a gross overgeneralization. But so he was like, I don't want to be like these people, so I'm going to go fight for my country. He was also like a kid, so he thought he would be fine. But he lost his legs in Vietnam. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. And his wife, when she was like talking to her, she said that all of the choices that he's made in his life were because of her murder and how he perceived people because of it. And so he wanted to like look into her murder because he wanted to kind of be able to put it to rest and to seek some peace for him and his family. But I think the rest of his family seems to have like tucked it away more than he did or he was just more self-aware of like everything I've done was because of this how I see the world is because of this it sounded like he had a good relationship with his sister too so Bill was actually the one that told his family about what had happened to Kitty like the details because they didn't know they weren't told by police they didn't go to the trials so they wouldn't have known which I thought was so sad it's interesting that you and I talk about a lot of cases where the families are finding out more details even today, like in trials and things. And like compared to this, we've come a long way, but we're still not there yet. This is awful still. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and I think this is an interesting place to maybe look at as our starting point. Mm hmm right? Of like truly knowing nothing. And so his family kind of didn't want to know all of the details, right? Like they were like, she died years ago. I would imagine for some of them in his family, it's one of the worst things that's ever happened. Yeah. So like, I don't know if I would want to relive that. But so the identity of every witness had never been released before this documentary. So there was 38 people. He requested the case file from the New York Police Department and they sent him copies of everything. And so some people said that the scream sounded like an animal. Others thought it sounded like a child. Lots of the reports were illegible and the names were redacted. So he was like, this isn't that helpful. 
He called researchers and because there were, we're going to talk about the bystander effect in a second, but the bystander effect like really came from this. So there were people who did research based on this. So they had actually copies of the police records that were unredacted, which I thought was wild. So he called a researcher and he said that he might have records at Columbia. So he went there and he found a list of names in the files and their summarized statements. And it was 38 people, 38 statements. So it's interesting that these research records were a better source of information on this murder than an actual police file. That's mind-boggling, but not altogether surprising. So their mother had a stroke a year after Kitty's murder, but she survived. At 55, their father died of a stroke. So their mother said that her faith had carried her throughout the years, which I mean, I would imagine you would have to have some sort of belief system to be able to cope with the death of a child. But she also said that she forgave Kitty's murderer, which... That must be a very, very hard thing to do. Yeah. So the bystander effect is also known as the Genovese syndrome. And the idea that it explains why someone witnessing a crime wouldn't immediately help the victim. Biblis Hain and John Darley, psychologists, have shown in clinical experiments that witnesses are less likely to help a victim if there are other witnesses. Basically, the more witnesses, the less likely we are to intervene. That's really sad. It is really sad. And I heard this case when I was like 19. Yeah. And was like, oh, the way that I saw the world, like I thought of emergency situations, like how I would react in those based on the bystander effect. Yeah. Well, I think maybe that's partly why whenever I I know I've brought up that story before, like where we saw a kid almost get kidnapped. There were plenty of people around, but I was like, nope, we have to like we have to be the ones to like call right now. I don't care if they get 50 calls for calling. Exactly. And I have called before where they're like, oh, that's already been reported. Thank you. And it's just like a quick five second call. Done. They don't even ask for information, but rather try than just be like someone else will handle it. Yeah. I would sooner be the 300th witness mm-hmm. than be the one of the 300 people that didn't call. Exactly. And just like the mentality of that being a thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe isn't so real. Yeah. So New York Times covered this whole case. In 1964, they had an article that alleged that 38 people saw or heard the murder but didn't call the police. The article was based on a conversation between the New York Times editor, Eve Rosenthal, and the police commissioner, Michael Murphy. Later that year, he wrote a book called 38 Witnesses. So in an interview between Rosenthal and Bill, Abe said... It was the failure of the people of New York City to fail to help her. There are allegations that some of the reporting is not factual. Jim Raisenberger wrote an article in the New York Times refuting some of the claims made in the 1964 reporting. He pointed out a couple flaws. Joe DeMay, a Kew Gardens resident and amateur historian, gave a bunch of information. Most witnesses were ear witnesses, not eyewitnesses. So they heard something. They heard the first scream. They went to look, but she was already gone. When they saw the man come back, Kitty had moved behind the building and they couldn't see her. So they thought that she was safe, possibly even that she went into the building successfully. I I sort of see that. But again, like what Lindsay and I were just mentioning, you see something, try to report it. I mean, it could save someone's life. And again, if they've gotten 30 calls from it, that's what they're going to say. We already have this reported. Goodbye. Super easy. So Jim Rasenberger, when he originally looked at DeMay's website that had these theories, he was like, oh, this sounds right. Like this, this is a compelling argument. Yeah. That like nobody had raised and that no one in the media had questioned the 38 witnesses themselves. And other magazines even exaggerated it to more. So like... 
said eyewitnesses or said a higher number. And when Bill was talking to Rasenberger, he was like, why didn't anybody follow up with those eight people? Right. Because if that was today, oh, my gosh, they would have like each person would have a spread in people. Right. Like it would be intense. But what Rasenberger said was because people trusted and respected The New York Times. And it's so interesting, the idea that like one news source would say a thing and then everyone else was like just repeating it. And they were like, well, New York Times did fact checking and then moved on. So Gabe Pressman is a reporter at WNBC. And at the time, a police reporter that he knew said that the articles didn't make sense. Lots of people thought it was a drunken brawl between a man and a wife and that it wasn't included in the original telling of the story because it would have ruined the story. Like it wouldn't have been as compelling if it was like a domestic violence situation or that that's what people thought. And the idea that we're like, that's not sexy enough in terms of like what will sell. Disgusting. So some students of Gabe Pressman reached out to Abe Rosenthal about questions involving the coverage of the case, which I find fascinating because remember, right, Abe wrote this like shoddily reported article as the editor. So he was the boss and then he wrote a book. So he has a vested interest in being right. And when they called them, he was very mad. And he said that there were articles and classes and courses on this and it couldn't be wrong. And that they said that he didn't really seem to care about the truth. So here's this person who literally told the story of this murder in the context of 30 witnesses who saw this, basically, and then seems really flippant about what actually happened. So during Winston Mosley's murder trial, only five of the 38 witnesses were called to testify. And that in and of itself seems really telling to me, right? Like, I feel like if, if you had 38 eyewitnesses, you would call them. And so one was Samuel Koshkin. I didn't see a lot on what he actually said. There was Robert Moser, who we mentioned earlier. He was the one who yelled and scared him off. And he said after yelling at him, the guy took off like a, quote, scare rabbit. Then there was Sophie Farrar and Kitty was alive when Sophie got to her. Now, remember, we talked about that she was the one who like was like someone call for help. Right. And so Bill spoke with Sophie's son because Sophie was really reluctant to talk to anybody. He was also alive and lived in the apartment with his mom. So he heard her scream, too. So Bill asked him, how many people do you think heard it? And he said, just looking at the windows, 40 or 50, it was loud. So he remembers his father trying to look out the window to see what was happening, but they couldn't see anything. So they just went back to bed. And I mean, I would imagine that like someone's screaming. If you don't know what they're screaming, there's just somebody out there yelling, right? Like you don't know if it's somebody who's intoxicated. Right. You don't know if it's someone being hurt. Like you just don't know. And if you can't see, you can't see. I guess thinking about how congested New York is too. Yeah. In certain spots, obviously. But how often, I guess, there's loud noises and screams and crazy things happening that might necessarily not be murders. Yeah. But it, it's still hard, hard to say what you'd do in that situation, right? Yeah. It's, I think it's very difficult. So Sophie was friends with Kitty. And that's why someone called Sophie that night and told him that Kitty was in the hallway bleeding. Sophie ran down before her husband because she couldn't. She was like, I'm not waiting for you. I got to go, which good on her. She should. When so her son said that when his mom tried to help Kitty, she could feel the stab wounds. Like when she was trying to like apply pressure, like she could feel how deep they were and that Kitty kept trying to talk, but she was gurgling blood. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. When he opened the door later, the kid and the whole bottom of it was covered in blood. He could smell it. 
he's like, I'll never forget that smell. And when I said that Sophie was distrustful of newspapers it, or distrustful of like, talking about this, and it's because one time when she was interviewed, she spoke to a woman, very kind. And then when she went and wrote the article, she completely lied and said the opposite of what Sophie said. So she didn't speak to anybody else again until she spoke to Bill. And so some of the things that Sophie said was that there were cuts all over her leather gloves from her trying to like protect herself. This next part like really gets me because like they were friends and she was like, I hope that she knew it was me with her and that she wasn't alone. Oh, it's just such a sad thing to picture in your head. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to talk about a couple more witnesses. So one was Carl Ross. Carl opened up the door to his apartment and witnessed Mosley stabbing Kitty while she was trying to speak. Rather than trying to help her, Carl closed the door and called his girlfriend to try to figure out what to do. Don't be like Carl. What? Like, fucking Carl, man. His girlfriend said, do not get involved. So Carl climbed out of his window and went to a neighbor's apartment. Don't be like Carl's girlfriend either. Yeah. Carl only called the police after hearing Sophie shout for someone to. So he didn't action it until someone told him to. Joseph Fink, the elevator operator, saw the entire first attack. Rather than helping her, he went on the elevator down to his apartment. Don't be like Joseph either. 2020 tried to interview witnesses in 1979, including Carl, but no one would speak. I mean, I could understand why he might not want to talk to anybody. Like, he sounds like a coward. No, he shouldn't be able to talk to anyone ever again. Lynn Tillotson lived on the second floor, and her apartment was 214. She felt like the neighborhood was safe. People would often pull down the shades. She heard a single scream but didn't see anything outside the window, so she went back to sleep. She lived with her parents, and she didn't think that they had actually heard the scream. But her mom did say that she heard it. Lynn's mother never said anything. She didn't even know that she had spoke to police. The next one is Hattie Grund, and she saw a woman screaming for help. She was standing in front of the cleaners, and there was no one else. She called the police, and they said that they got calls before she even finished her sentence. She lived in the Kew Gardens apartments, and people were not apathetic there. Bill looked at the police logs for 911 calls, and the only one was from Carl Ross. So perhaps she didn't even call? Or perhaps they didn't even record the calls. And also how 911 worked. Well, I guess if she didn't even finish her sentence, they probably didn't even have a moment to even get all of, I guess, the information. I don't know how call logs really worked back then. Bill interviewed Marianne, her girlfriend, and Marianne said that she had gone to New Canaan with Kitty to visit her family. And they didn't know they were together. They just said they were a friend. And that after Kitty died, that Kitty's family wouldn't see her. She wasn't interviewed on camera, but I just thought it was interesting, their relationship and how she talks about it. So Bill asked, how did she meet Kitty? And she said it was at a bar. Marianne said that she was very much in love. And Bill asked, did Kitty love you as much? Which I thought was a very interesting question to ask. Yeah. And Marianne was like, I don't know. She was like conflicted about being gay. And Marianne said, I think with time she would have worked it out, which like hurts my heart as like, yeah, general human, but also like as a queer person, like it's really hard to untangle all that. And I would imagine in the 60s, it was even harder trying to figure it all out. And you're like, you found your person and maybe you aren't ready to like be there yet. So he asked Marianne if she heard anything and she said that she'd blocked it out like she couldn't remember if she did or not. And that she went to the morgue at 4 a.m. to identify her. And I think it's interesting that they had her identify her. And then they also had Kitty's family call and have someone identify her as well. Yeah. I typically thought you just needed one person to do the body, but I'm assuming that they may not have taken Marianne as 
a relative, right? Like it would have needed to be somebody like official kin. So one day they had an argument and Kitty got a poodle that they named Andrew. I was like, I'm sorry. And after Kitty died, her father said that he wanted the dog because it was Kitty's. And Miriam was like, no, Kitty got this for me from an argument. It's my dog. And then she woke up on think that like the following Thanksgiving and the dog was gone and she never saw him again. Oh, and then Bill said that on that same Thanksgiving, he woke up and the dog was there and instead had taken the dog to try to cheer her mom up to be like, this was Kitty's, right? And her mom was like, no, I don't want it. And then the dog was gone. So he didn't even take it back to Marianne. Awful human. That's horrible. Poor dog. And Bill is like a nice human. was like, I'm really sorry that my family did that. Like, you didn't need to deal with that. I thought was sweet. Marianne said, a trauma can be so bad that it tears you up, but somehow you have to heal. Right now, I haven't healed. She says she slept with Kitty's shirt for a long time. She asked Bill if he had ever went to any of the parole hearings for Mosley. And she was like, maybe that would help me heal. She thought about like whether she would go. Yeah. And I was like, oof. It was a very heartbreaking interview. Like it was as heartbreaking as you would imagine. Like when someone loses their partner so suddenly and then is additionally traumatized with homophobia. That's horrible. So let's talk about Mosley for a moment. He was sentenced to death on June 15th, 1964, but it was reduced to life in prison in 1968. Later in 1968, he actually broke out of prison. Then, after breaking out of prison, he raped a woman and held hostages when law enforcement closed in. So maybe the wrong choice was made there. In 1977, he completed a sociology degree and wrote an editorial for the New York Times saying he was reformed. Who does that sound like? Hmm. Jack Unterweger. Yeah. And just as a reminder, he was one of the serial killers that stayed at the Cecil Hotel who committed unspeakable acts, would rape women with their own bras, and then was like, I'm great, and was a great writer, so people welcomed him back into society, only for him to do it again. Yep. Bill spoke with Mosley's son after Mosley declined to speak with him. His son said that Kitty had been screaming racial slurs at him. But Bill asked, but you know, he killed other women. And the response was, I don't know much about that. The son also believed that Kitty was related to the Jenna's VC crime family. However, they absolutely weren't in relation to the crime family. And remember, too, that Mosley himself said he was going to kill someone that night. Exactly. Yeah. She was the wrong place, the wrong time. So, I mean, nothing about who she is and nothing about any witness ever suggested that she did that. But even if she had, he was still killing someone that night. Right. So seven months later, Mosley wrote a letter. He said he was a getaway driver for a mobster named Dominic. And he says, I thought he was hitting her. I didn't know he had a knife because she owed him and that he had threatened his family if he were to ever tell anyone about him. So in interviews with Mosley, he remembers swinging the knife, but not really the details. So it was interesting that he had like an entirely different story. Yeah. Now, lastly about Mosley, he was 81 when he died on March 28th of 2016. He had a full life. I hate that. <laughs> now, we mentioned 911 previously, but Kitty is one of the reasons that the emergency 911 system was put into place in New York City. And then in 1968, 911 became the national emergency number. So it's interesting that like it wasn't as like it's tight of a structure. Like if you think about calling 911, you know you're going to get somebody, right? And for example, Amanda, when you were a child, did you call 911? I don't think I did. No, not as a child. 
Well, I did. I was an asshole. My mom told me she had a headache. I called 911 because she was dying. Makes sense. Yeah. And when I hung up with them, they called back, spoke to my mother. And my mother was like, I just have a migraine. She's traumatic. But it's so advanced now that they're like, we know where your call is coming from. We know who called, what time, how long it was. Whereas from what it seems like, it seems like it was a much more rudimentary system at that time. And so Kitty's murder is one of the worst things that's happened on Friday the 13th, for sure. We didn't have too many cases because we really wanted to focus on Kitty's for this episode. But do you believe in the bystander effect? So knowing that its origins here in this particular case are inaccurate, do you still think that's the case? Like, do you still think that if you scream for help, nobody would help you? I think it depends on where it takes place. Because I feel like in a busy apartment complex now in New York, it's going to be a little different, right? But like, I don't know, say midday in your neighborhood, unless you have like that one neighbor that literally calls about any little sound. I don't know, right? What about you? Yeah, I I agree. I think it's contextual. I will say one of the things that it makes me think of is like when you're driving down the road and you see someone who's like pulled off and they're like fixing a tire or they're like run out of gas and like walking. Right. And do you help them? Yes or no. Right. And my thing is, is that I don't know anything about cars, so I'm not helpful. All I would be is moral support. That's one part. My logic in going isn't, oh, someone else is going to help them. It's that one, I am not helpful or two, you will murder me. And so the bystander effect is like the idea that nobody helps because they think that somebody else is going to. Yeah. Because there's just so many people who can hear it, right? Or see the problem. So I think it's a little bit different. It still depends, but also now everyone has a cell phone glued to their hand. So it's significantly easier for someone to be the one to call or like I was the 30th or whatever person to call about an accident at one point. So I'm I'm assuming more people step up. But again, like I think it depends on if it's in front of you or if it's not, because think about like this situation, a giant apartment complex where people did. They did get out of bed. They looked out their window, didn't see anything. So, like, realistically, what would they have told someone, you know, if they would have called for help? I heard something. I don't see anything anywhere, though. And and then we're also conditioned in some points to be like, well, if you don't see anything, what do you want us to do about it? Exactly. Well, that wraps up our true crime portion of Friday the 13th. We want to know, what are your thoughts on Friday the 13th? Does it scare you? Do you get excited for Friday the 13th? Do you do anything to celebrate? Yeah. Also, you may have heard a dog bark. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Do you have Triscodecophobia, Periscovidecophobia, or Frigatisidecophobia? Do you have those? Hope not. Why? What happens? How does it manifest? I want to know. And also, if you have a restaurant, just let us know if you will be having a 13-course dinner. And with that, have a nice weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at TrueCreepsPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrueCreepsPod, and on Twitter at TrueCreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.